0: Hi, I'm Don Mackey, and welcome to the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. This show is focused on providing strategies to empower community success and vitality. Each episode will feature interviews with cutting edge rural development thought leaders and community practitioners, remarkable entrepreneurs from business, government, and nonprofits, and by sharing the learnings of E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. Connect with me, learn more about E2, and subscribe to this show at energizingentrepreneurs.org.
1: Welcome, everybody. I'm Frank Spillers, owner of Rural Community Solutions. And today on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast, we're going to be talking about marginalized communities. And to do that, we have the expert joining us, Don Mackey. Don and I have been friends and colleagues for a long time, dating back to just a long time. We won't won't go way back there, but Don is the expert on building entrepreneurial ecosystems, has written a paper on marginalized communities. And so today we're going to be talking about what is a marginalized community, how does that figure into your community? And the capacity that you can bring those folks into building your community and the benefits of doing that. So welcome, Don. It's really good to hear your voice and to have you.
0: Hey, Frank, it's wonderful. As you know, I've enjoyed working with you over the years. Glad we've got some collaborative partnerships. You're no slacker either when it comes to this topic, so I hope we can uh, get some of your views as well. I look forward to our conversation today. Well, thanks. Well, it has been a
1: passion of ours. of How do you get people engaged in communities? And it's just, it's really kind of a fun challenge to do that. So in your paper on the marginalized rural Americans, you kind of explore what the meaning of marginalization. Can you go a little bit deeper on that? What do you mean by marginalization or marginalized population.
0: My favorite definition actually comes from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and it's, quote, to relegate to an unimportant or powerless position within a society or group. I just think that definition, in a few words, nails it. The implication for rural communities and for the rest of the country, for that matter, is when we have large numbers of people either in urban or rural America, that are kind of in that position where they feel powerless, that the system isn't working for them. It leads to a set of behaviors that We have to deal with and our work in Indiana showed that it leads to residents engaging in at-risk behavior and disengagement dropping out of the workforce or the whole opioid crisis. It can lead to anger and political backlash. Uh, The whole radicalization right now is illustrated by the January 6th sacking of the U.S. Capitol. But it also is one of the factors that's been driving our rural children and families from rural America to urban. Urban places, So these are huge implications when we then crosswalk it with community economic development. It's
1: experiences that we build in our communities for the youth that really give them either a good experience or a bad experience. And if it's a good experience, they might come back. If it's a bad experience, then they won't come back. And so sometimes those youth are even marginalized as in that community, or say the at-risk youth in a community can be a marginalized group too. As you give a kind of an overview of this continuum, why is it important to rural communities to mobilize this Process and bring folks in in their community development?
0: Well, I think it goes back to this idea that the foundation of all community building, whether it's economy or society, is rooted in human talent. And when you have substantial segments of uh, your community's residents who are marginalized, they don't vote, they don't volunteer, they're angry at the community because maybe the economy's not working for them, or even they're more radicalized and they're engaging in that kind of behavior that can be very disruptive, as was the case in the 1980s in Ord in our story, where radical groups took over the community and began to burn books and shut down public discourse. There's a real price for that. And the flip side is from an entrepreneurial development standpoint or a community building standpoint, Frank, is when we can create pathways for residents in our community who feel marginalized, maybe somebody who got in trouble with the law, went to prison, has come home, is there a way for them now to constructively engage in that economy and society? That gives us the ability to utilize all the talent we have, and I think that's very important. But it also, as you know, creates an environment or a culture where other folks take note, and maybe those uh, young people you were talking about that leave now say, okay, this community is more accepting, more welcoming. There are opportunities for me to fulfill my dreams. That's a powerful resource, particularly when we think about in some of our rural communities, upwards to 30% of our working age adults are marginalized in one way or another. That's a lot of talent to be leaving on the sidelines. Even in our
1: workforce, the information from Gallup has that only 30% of our workforce is engaged, fully engaged in what they do. And that means they're they're passionate about what they what they get to do. At least 70% disengaged. They're just not passionate about what they do. And some of that disengagement is to actively disengage the engaged. And we see that in our community to where. Some of those marginalized groups, and you were talking about it with capital insurrection there, that some of those marginalized groups will lash out at the engaged that are doing good work just to disengage them because, one, they want them to join the crowd, and and two, they're
0: just... Angry. Going back to the definition of feeling powerless or unimportant, that can lead people to begin to believe in both real and unreal conspiracy that in some cases the system doesn't work as well. For if you are somebody who has a substance abuse issue, it may be very hard to get employed and stay employed and get housing and that type of thing. But it also can cause people to begin to align themselves with some of the not-so-true conspiracy theories that are out there that the elites on the coasts. I'm just reading right now a book called Rural Rebellion by Ross, I think it's Bennis, B-E-N-E-S. I may not have pronounced that correctly, but he's a Nebraska young man. Just the idea that the elites on the coasts are somehow the enemy of folks who live in America's heartland. And... That's not constructive for those of us who live in rural America or for the country in general.
1: In our work in Indiana, we actually did kind of an exercise. Our community that was sitting in the room during our Community Prosperity Institute was saying, yes, uh, we want to attract people into our community. One of the questions we asked them is, who do you want to attract? And they said, well, we would take anybody. We started then to list out some of those people say of a different religion of a different mindset even from a different state different race different ethnicity and they said well i mean they they really kind of took a step back and their faces changed a little bit and said well maybe we wouldn't be ready or our culture wouldn't be able to accept everybody on that so it really is a realization to the community of starting to identify what you call the tapestry of an individual of who do you want to live in your community. So what are the, what are the benefits of doing that type of exercise in the community?
0: And the first time I saw you and Kim do that exercise in Indiana... It really blew me away at how powerful it was, because you're you're absolutely right. Some people took a very broad and expansive view of who they would like to attract, but others really described people like themselves. If you want to become a welcoming community, almost every rural community needs to attract and retain new residents. This becomes profoundly important. Even where we don't have overt bias, maybe it's subtle bias or unintentional bias, It's at play in our community, and it sends signals. One of the books that I know I recommended to you and Kim and to other readers is Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, The Origins of Our Disconnects. And, I mean, it's a hard read because it's painful. In the United States, we kind of deny the idea we have classes. But, in fact, she makes a pretty powerful case that We have dominant groups and we have these kind of clan groups that have similar political ideology or religious ideology. Or they just look like me. And that can create a really hostile environment for existing residents who just kind of hunker down and get quiet. They disengage because they don't want to create waves in a small community where everybody kind of knows each other. But it sure creates a huge wall for new people to come in. I think what that exercise did, Frank, is it really created space for a constructive discussion to say, Chances are, if we want to attract and retain new residents, including our own kids and grandkids, we better open up our attitudes about what kind of people will be coming into our community. Chances are they're going to have different views, they're going to look differently, they're going to have different customs and are we prepared to deal with that? I think it's foundational to rural community economic development today.
1: That has to be done. And we have the process of talking through those issues. We, and sometimes they say that because of your culture, you have swept issues under the rug that you're not pulling out because it's difficult to talk about those. We call those wicked issues. They're important to solve, hard to solve. Emotions run high. And there's many different perceptions of how you can solve those. And this is one of those. Who do we want to have live in our community? You're right. It is fundamental on that. And, and we could really go down some rabbit holes here, but time's times going there. So talk about that community of ORD. You captured some stories out of ORD, and, and it's just phenomenal. What are some of your learnings, and, and how did ORD address this issue to where they uh, start to attract investment because they didn't start to attract investment until really this issue was handled.
0: Exactly. And I think it's one of the foundational reasons why ORD has gone from a community of crisis and conflict in the 1980s to this remarkably successful, vibrant, and thriving community uh, today. I think it also requires us to kind of broaden our definition of what diversity is. We've all worked in, in rural communities where we kind of defined diversity in pretty traditional ways, race and ethnicity. You know, that's right. That's one of the elements of diversity. But again, kind of going back to Wilkerson's book called Cast, diversity is much greater. And, and the org story really pulled this out. There are still issues of gender equity, but there are also issues that we found around how long-term residents versus new residents were being treated, how young people were being treated versus established families, and also individuals who maybe grew up in the family that, you know, we use the old adage, grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. The family had a bit of a history, didn't have that deep pocket or those connections. I think what Ord found is they had been discriminating against A lot of that diversity, not intentionally, at least as we looked at it, although maybe some of it was, you know, if you look at bank lending and access to resources. But the other thing is oftentimes people who feel marginalized, they don't reach out for help. So they self-select out of the system by their disengagement. And that can be as difficult to deal with because the end result's the same. They're not part of building a stronger community. So I think what Ord did is it really began to change its cultural attitudes to say, I don't care if you're a newcomer, uh, if you're a woman, if you're a young person with a rotten credit score and high student debt, we're going to create pathways to give you a chance to prove up, to give you an opportunity to succeed in our community. And when you look at a lot of our org stories, it just comes through in spades that they opened doors where historically they didn't. And many of the people who have really succeeded in building the community and building the economy are folks that uh, come out of this broader area of diversity. So one of the things I, you know, I was talking with some of my friends in Kansas and people come back and say, well, we don't have a diverse community. I mean, we're 99% white and we all go to the same church and and it's like, no, let's slow down. You've got diversity there. You may not have race and ethnic diversity, but as you and I've talked about, chances are if you can get your community growing, those new residents that are going to come are going to reflect more of the diversity of the country versus the diversity of the community they're moving into.
1: The more we work in, in rural communities, specifically with the youth in their high schools, we really target at-risk youth, those, uh, those youth that are kind of at risk or not graduating on time with their class. We're finding in, in a rural Community, the, the students that kind of fit into that realm are the ones that don't go on to college. They're not into the four years school. So they generally stay in that community and work. And then when they become a part of the community, they start to become school board members and city council members and, and mayors. And you can really get really good high school stories from some of those leaders of how they acted in high school. But one of the issues that they do is. When they're on the school board or in the city council, their response to them is, well, if it was good enough for me back then, it's good enough for them right now. So it's those experiences that are passed on culturally from one generation to the next, that's where that marginalization comes in that you were talking about of people that might not have the correct family name or they're not accepted. They're not the athletes in school system. That that really carries on as, as the culture. So as we look at this, Dawn, and in the show notes, there's a link to the cast book, uh, The Origins of Our Disconnect. So you can go there, but Where else can they find information, Don? If if they want to go deeper in this, what more can they find?
0: We are curating, and Kim, as part of the Spillers team, is helping us uh, get this paper. But we're putting together a thought paper on this topic, feeling that we want to create some frameworks where people can step back and maybe loosen the ties of emotion and denial, and really think about marginalization and the flip side, embracing diversity as as helpful. So we, we've got some specific resources in addition to this paper that'll be coming out when we drop the podcast, Frank. We also have a paper that has been released that we'll re-release with this podcast. It, Is your community a JEDI community? And we borrowed that term JEDI from our friend uh, Janet Topolsky at the Aspen Institute. It stands for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, kind of a broader definition and and why that's important. So that could be a pretty good resource. There's also a, a remarkable piece specific to entrepreneurial ecosystem building that our friend Del Gines and some of his colleagues at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City put together. Uh, building entrepreneurial ecosystems and communities of color. It's just a uh, really exceptional. And Dell does get into this idea that there are talented, motivated people. I mean, there's a reason why, for example, refugees and immigrants tend to create more businesses than, re- than the resident population in the U.S. It's because it's one way they can create a life for themselves. Dell's paper really gets into that. And then finally... A piece that we put together for the Fed, Dell and I did a number of years ago, as part of one of our summits: entrepreneurship in communities on the margin. And we may think of inner city neighborhoods with large African American or Hispanic population. But Dell and I would agree with him, we make the case that oftentimes in America, rural communities now feel like they're on the margin, they're marginalized. And that's what Ross is picking up in his book called Rural Rebellion. It's a manifestation of large segments of people who have been impacted by structural change, economic failures, whether it's textiles in the Southeast or timber in the Northwest entire industries swept away and people feeling hopeless. We need to understand these dynamics if we're going to engage in community building to uh, move forward.
1: That's so important and specifically now because people are choosing where to live. And so because during this, the COVID thing is uh, people have learned that they can do work from any place now. So they can have that choice where they want to live. And I look at it as it's a really a rural America's opportunity of a strategic advantage to start to create that culture that they can attract the people that want to live there if they're intentional about it. The website that you can go to is energizingentrepreneurs.org. And you can, there's a lot of free resources there. Join the network get more information, get involved specifically with the E2 process. It's a great team to be involved with. If I do say so myself, we do good work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, let let me just identify a couple of generic resources. And then, you know, Frank, I want to give you a little bit of time to put in a pitch for your organization and the work you do before we wrap up. So, yeah, your points well taken. EnergizingEntrepreneurs.org is the place to go and who's our communications director does an amazing job. One of the things you can do is you can sign up for our E2 National Practitioners Network and access. These are all free resources. Uh, access our, our resources on helping you build entrepreneurial ecosystems and communities in rural America. There's our monthly newsletter. I always make the point that, you know, it's easy to subscribe to. It's also easy to unsubscribe so that if you don't find it valuable, you don't have to have it fill in your inbox. And then, of course, our increasing collection of Pathway to Rural Prosperity podcasts. We're dropping two a month on, on a lot of different topics with a lot of different people, and uh, there's a pretty rich collection there that is easy for folks. But. Before we sign off, share with our listeners a little bit about you and your work, because we've had the chance to reconnect and begin to work together, which has been fantastic. But you guys are an amazing resource for rural America. Well, thank you, Don. We, we really
1: appreciate it. and And we are so thankful of the connection that we've had with you and be able to start our work in, in Indiana and, and around the country. But Rural Community Solutions works on the culture of a community based over the time when somebody jumped off a wagon and said, this is where I want to start my community, wherever your community, whenever your community started, and then started inviting people to live there. And then entrepreneurs started to develop around the needs of the community and build the business by there. And so we use a four pillar process for community prosperity. And that is, do you build great relationships with people? Do they feel welcome in your community and accepted? The second pillar is engagement. Do you have a process where people can talk through the issues, not just about those issues? So you get down to the interest of a person, not just the position that they're taking. So that helps that marginalized community come in and actually have community leaders hear their voice, not just listen to them, but actually hear their voice. And then Collaboration and showing appreciation is your third pillar, and it's, it's all wrapped around entrepreneurship of how we build an entrepreneurial economy in rural America and have a rebirth of new businesses or even a teleworkforce of that economy that you can build that will attract people And when you do that and you you merge those together, you build trust, you build unity, and you build build great policy in your communities around there and bring your other communities together to build a real economic region. And so that's how we change the culture. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you, Don, and and have you here uh, with your expertise, because it just adds so much value to the communities of what they can learn on that. So this is the, the podcast here is Pathways to Rural Prosperity Podcast. Done. Any excellent expert advice as we go out here?
0: Well I just want to thank you, Frank. And I wanted you to share because I really do recommend to folks that if they're interested in taking that next step and growing a welcoming community. They should get in touch with you because your resources, your approach, the framework you employ, I think is uh, one of the best in the country. And every community should be working on this if they want to be successful. I appreciate you sharing that, not only just to give you a plug, but this is relevant to the topic we were talking about today. So, yeah, it's been fun to have this conversation with you. And thanks for hosting this edition of our podcast.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having us. And for your listeners out there, we we appreciate you. Share the podcast, share it with your neighbors. share it with your community, and even even share it with uh, the community as you're sitting around, maybe having your board meeting or something like that, and then have a conversation about what you heard. And maybe evaluate your own community. And if there's any way we can help, get a hold of us. Don, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. We really appreciate
0: it. It's my pleasure, Frank. You take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Head on over to energizingentrepreneurs.org where you can subscribe to this podcast and tap into more than 25 years of field experience from E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. I'm Don Mackey, and I'll see you next time on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast.